and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. This is the first episode of 2022, and I have a wonderful guest for you for this episode. Here's my guest to introduce himself. Hello, I am Billy Ray Belcourt from the Driftpile Cree Nation in Northwest Alberta in Treaty 8 territory. I'm an assistant professor of Indigenous creative writing at the University of British Columbia. I have written three books, This Wound is a World, Indian Coping Mechanisms, and The History of My Brief Body. I asked Billy Ray if he could be the character in any novel, poem, children's book, etc., who he would be and why. Here's what he said. Maybe this is a weird answer, but not so much a character, but as an entity that could bear witness, perhaps, to the conversation that unfolds in Yi Yun Lee's book, Where Reasons End. It's just heartbreaking and thoughtful and incredibly poetic conversation between a mother and a son who has passed in this other kind of realm that the author has conjured for them and to to simply have been there I think would have been an incredibly um, transformative and revelatory experience. Billy Ray Belcourt's book A History of My Brief Body won the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and was a finalist for the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Billy Ray starts our conversation with a reading from his book. This is from A History of My Brief Body. I'm going to read three short fragments. This isn't a book about you, Nokum. A book about you, a book in which you appear uncomplicatedly in a world of your own making, would be an anti-nation undertaking. Canada is in the way of that book. To write that book, I would need to write crookedly and while on the run. I would need to write my way out of a map and onto the land. For now, you move in and out of my books as the wind in a photograph. I swear no one will mistake you for a deflated balloon hanging from my fist. Here and in my poetry, you're always looking up at the sky, longing for the future. In order to remember you as a practitioner of the utopian, I need to honor the intimacies of the unwritten. This book then is as much an ode to you as it is to the world to come. In the world to come, your voice reminds those in your orbit that we can stop running, that we've already stopped running. Often, I remember that you likewise have been denied the relief and pleasure of stillness. When I do, my heart breaks. When it does, I gather the shards into the shape of a country. Then I close my eyes and swallow. It's August, 2012. I give the valedictory address in a church behind the high school. 
In it, I spend a great deal of time thanking family and friends for their contributions to my upbringing. During the softly named rose ceremony, I cry as I hug a number of my relatives. As the graduates empty out of the room, I hug my dad, who is sitting with his partner and their kids near the altar. I realize everyone is taking in the spectacle of two Native men in a familial embrace, both of us overcome with emotion. In those piercing seconds, we were a possibility more than anything else, a mode in which Native men rarely get to exist. In hugging me, my dad teaches me how to hold. In hugging me, my dad teaches me how to be held. At night, I turn down the lights with this image. It gives me a nocturnal language, something with which to go about the unglamorous work of survival. July 2017, post-sex, fixed in the pale light of an overhead lamp, sprawled across my mattress on the floor. You are so motionless, Robert. It looks as though you're a painting ruled by sentiment. I hope you're capable of such grace so that I too can be. We, two men of no aesthetic significance, engineered beauty from stolen time with our lumbering bodies. All my psyche can hold is the past, present, and future tense of the moment. I lie down beside you, the sheets wrestling beneath us as though we've made a forest floor of our yearnings. I want to live a whole human life in this bedroom of wet hands, where, for evenings at a time, the world starts and ends without celebration or remorse. What I know, we aren't running away. The eyes are too hungry for their own good. There is yellow of endless gradations. I want to see you tiptoe into all of them. Beside you, bound together in the same puny blaze, there is little to believe in besides the promise of our infinite luminosity. So in talking about your book, maybe this is an obvious question, but I'd love to hear, I don't think I've ever heard you answer how this book started for you and and how you were inspired to write a memoir after writing books of poetry. So actually the first essay that I wrote that would later become part of this book, I wrote when I was 21. So before I had even started writing the second book of poetry. And that essay was the essay about loneliness and grinder and hookup culture and uh, you know public health uh, inequities around queer access to health and I wrote the essay out of a sense of urgency to ground myself in my body because of the gravity of the situation I felt unanchored to it and I think that spirit permeates the entirety of the book and I had been writing essayistically for a long time because I was a grad student and it was a mode I was familiar with so when I won the Griffin prize this would have been when I was nominated for the Griffin prize 
my agent and I were talking about what my next project would be. And we thought about the possibility of a longer prose work. And I realized that I had a number of essays sort of just floating around my computer. And I decided to compile those and send them to, you know, my eventual editor at Penguin. And with, with his help, we sort of reshaped the book less into a random assortment of thoughts, <laughs> more into something with at least some, you know, thematic and conceptual cohesion, even though the book is incredibly fragmented and it, its power is, I think, in its fragmentation, we still endeavored to muster up a, a feeling of intentionality around the disjointedness. I'm curious what drew you to, or what draws you to the essay as a form versus a poem and, and what stories or themes you feel lend themselves to one over the other. Um, I, Cause I, I write essays myself. So I'm always curious how you kind of maneuver between the two. I think that my poetry is essayistic and my essays are poetic. And so there was a like organic back alley between the two for me. But with an essay, perhaps ironically, I felt more vulnerable and that I that I couldn't make use of the the, the trip the tricks and the techniques that a poet can use to suggest that what one is writing about is a larger social condition. But with an essay, I, I couldn't run from the, the personal and the autobiographical. And so maybe for me, what distinguished the experience of writing the poems from writing the essays was that it felt as if I were partly bringing myself into being to the act of writing, but also having to turn myself into an object of study with, with the point, you know, veracity being an aim and emotional truth in a way that's not always the aim with poetry. Yeah, I was curious about what you what you think about, because I think there's kind of a tradition around the idea of writing a memoir. And I wondered if you were engaging, like what you were thinking about that as you realized you were writing something that would be called a memoir and whether you were challenged by that or whether you wanted to actually challenge that tradition with what you were doing. Yeah. So the decision to call it a memoir was partly a marketing decision that the folks at Penguin took took the lead on. <laughs> I wasn't really calling it anything because I knew that it was hybridic and did not conform to the expectations of a conventional novel. And I was also incredibly disinterested in conforming to the expectations of a conventional novel or memoir, sorry. And as a result, the book... Um, in the U.S. is uh, it's called Essays as opposed to a memoir. 
I think an accurate subtitle or the most accurate subtitle would be poems and essays. But it's not wrong to say that the work is memoiristic because it very much begins and ends with my lived experience. What do you think of the tradition of memoir and and it seems like it's going through a bit of an evolution right now. Like I'm thinking of Jordan Abel's Nishka really challenged what I thought of as memoir. And so did your book as well, that, you know, there is that idea that a memoir has that novelistic structure, that very linear um, timeline. But it seems like we're starting to break that down. And I'd be interested in what you think of where memoir is going. So for me, I couldn't see an arc to my life when I was writing this book. It didn't feel like there was a beginning, a middle, and an end because I was still very much living the the subject matter I was interested in writing about. That could be a symptom of youth. I was, as I said, 21 when I wrote some of the early essays in this book. And I woke up one night in the middle of the night <laughs> and had a bit of a panic about my inability to, to write a memoir with a conventional narrative structure. And I remember emailing my editor <laughs> at that time in the middle of the night <laughs> and was like, can you call me tomorrow? I need to like think through some of these things that are bothering me. And then, well, I don't remember the specifics of that conversation. What I do remember coming away with is a fortified desire to authorize myself to write in a form that made sense for the way I was living in the world. That's something that I try to impart to my students, which is that our living or the, the way that our characters live or the subject of our poems are very much bound in or bound up with the world around us. And so um, it was, you know, my, my trepidations around writing an unconventional memoir were, were really expressions of a, of a market and I, I, I don't think anyone should ever write, um, or that shouldn't be your top priority is, you know, appeasing this, this ghostly market. And then I realized as well that the nonfiction writers who most inspired me were writing experimental books with long sentences and big ideas and, uh, uh a shoal of easiness or linearity and it, it it felt freeing to think of myself as part of that tradition i wanted to talk there were so many themes that i kept thinking of as i was reading the essays over and but one that kept kind of coming back to me was um you write about love a lot uh, in various forms and that came up of course in your reading and it probably is one of the most written about topics. I had I have no actual <laughs> research on this, but I would imagine it's one of the most written about topics. And 
I wondered how you felt about writing about love. Like, I, I also have wound up writing about love and I kind of like push back on it because it fe- almost feels so expected. But mm-hmm. also, I think there's a reason for that. Um, so I was, I was wondering what, what you were feeling as you were approaching that theme um, in the book. So from feminist scholars and activists and writers, I learned that love can be a site of both constitution and severance. That's Judith Butler's language. So love can be where a world is won or lost. And as a queer indigenous person, I have found that what I want from love, I want from political transformation and vice versa. So I couldn't help but write about love because it seems so entangled with a larger social and political project, which is to mitigate colonial violence, to remake the world, to decolonize. But on the other hand, and as I detail in a number of the essays in the book, love can also be a place where the logics of colonialism can be given expression. And my earliest experiences of the world shattering effects of colonialism or some of you know my earliest experiences were in relationships with with men who uh, you know, treated me poorly and who saw me less as a person with political aspirations and more so as an object of desire to be, to be mined and, and disposed of. And I've learned that that is an experience that a lot of people share. And so I thought that in writing about it, I I might also be a hand extended out to someone else. Because though it might be, so though love generally might be incredibly written about, there's still a need to write from specific positionalities. So there are still relatively so few books by queer indigenous people. And I know that my writing, Joshua Whitehead's writing, Jay Simpson's writing, you know, we, we all... Um, our work, our, move, our work moves out into the world, into places that the publishing world doesn't normally zero in on. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, as you're, you're saying this, I'm realizing, yes, love is one of the most written about topics, but it seems like we've, all, we've also, because exactly what you've said, we've zeroed in on certain versions of love certain stories of love and those have been written about over and over again but we've also failed to write about love outside of those those boundaries and so yeah having a hand to reach out is important and it mm-hmm. seems like we're not starting to look at those 
those more uh, non-heteronormative, non-white, non-conventional versions of love that we've been kind of fed through Disney movies and other means for, for so long. Exactly. It's interesting that you mentioned Judith Butler, uh, because something I really loved about your book was how you were in conversation with other theorists, other writers. I mean, I see some of what you share on social media, and I can see your stacks of books behind you. So I know you're <laughs> a voracious reader. But I'm curious what how much, you know, being in conversation with other writers and other work is important to the work you put on the page I was also very taken by the notes at the back of the book and how um, generous you were with like saying you were inspired by um, Therese Maylott's work and all of, I think that's just so beautiful and it's changed how I think about doing footnotes too. But um, just that relationship with other writing when you were working on the book. Mm -hmm. So I, was, I trained as an academic and so citationality was a practice that was integral to my intellectual upbringing, so to speak. I've always thought of my work as being a part of a larger chorus of thinkers around queerness and indigenous life and love and desire and trauma. And so with the book, I didn't want to disappear that chorus. And so name the writers or thinkers with whom I'm thinking and place their voices in the work. It's also an effort on my part to illuminate the collective act that writing is and also fighting for another world. Writing and fighting for another world are both incredibly social acts. And I, I think that it's, it's important that we make that visible. Another writer whose work I noticed right off the bat was um, Maggie Nelson's Bluettes is included as an epigraph. And it seems so it's such a fitting epigraph for many reasons, but also because I think that book is probably one of the most people are always claiming it for poetry or nonfiction, depending on which uh, circle you navigate through. And um, I'd be I'm just in talking with you, it seems like maybe you have ideas about genre and maybe the lines are a bit more permeable in how you think about that than in how, you know, the nonfiction convention would say nonfiction is and isn't. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on genre and those boxes and crossing genres. Yeah, I'm less interested in reifying or reaffirming boundaries, genre boundaries for the sake of it. And I see, I see genre as a history of ideas and techniques that we can take from, but also deviate from. And I was actually 
quite moved by uh, a section in Ocean Vong's acknowledgments in his novel, where he says that Ben Lerner reminded him that genre conventions are are simply conventions. They're, they're preferences that have over time somehow taken on the allure of authenticity, but that we can break from them and that there's a kind of freedom in breaking from them. That also feels queer and anti-colonial. Would you write another memoir or is this feel like one is enough for you? <laughs> yeah, I have thought about I have thought about this question. I don't feel any immediate need <laughs> to write another memoir. If anything, if I do write another work of creative nonfiction, it'll be a work of criticism. Partly because I feel like I've exhausted so much of my lived experience (laughs) and I have to go out in the world and live more. And also because I'm quite intimidated by what I've described earlier as that problem of not being able to fully see my life because I was so inside it. And there's something romantic perhaps about, you know, waiting until it feels like I can, I can um, see some larger arc or landscape. Um, so maybe when I'm, you know, 40. <laughs> Thanks to Billy Ray for being on the podcast. Billy Ray Belcourt is the author of A History of My Brief Body. If you want to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next week on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Lucky Bud and Roy Henry Vickers, whose book, Raven Squawk Orca Squeak, was a finalist for the 2021 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.